You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 425 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. This is the live panel recording from RailsConf at Home 2022. I'm going to pre-apologize here because I was so excited about creating a virtual conference experience that my audio sounds like I'm recording it from a massive conference room. In all seriousness, my backup recording failed out, but our editor, Paul, was able to piece the episode together for my video audio. Thank you so much, Paul. Luckily for you, the six panelists we have sound stellar and readily make up for me. With that, on to the show. Welcome to the RailsConf 2022 at-home podcast panel. We're excited to be bringing you this from our homes. The panel is running alongside the Clover Brook Farm Animal Meet and Greet virtual experience. So if you picked us, I'm not sure why you did, but we're so glad to have you here today. So we're going to meet each of our panelists one at a time. So first off, I'm Brittany Martin, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and I'm calling in from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Next, I'm going to call on each panelist and have them introduce themselves, where they're calling in from, and perhaps what they're known for. All right. So first off from Framework Friends, Aaron Francis. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Aaron Francis. Like you said, I'm the co-host of a podcast called Framework Friends, where we talk about Rails and Laravel and all kinds of different stuff. And I am calling in from Dallas, Texas. And what do we know about you, Aaron? What are you known for? In this community, being a Laravel developer, I also work at a small software company called Tuple. Awesome. Excellent. Next up is going to be Andy Kroll from Chats in the Cupboard. Yeah, I'm Andy. My friend Vida here and I make an excuse to talk to each other and we record it for the benefits of the whole internet or seven of the whole internet. I am calling in from Brighton in the UK where it's bedtime. So hopefully there won't be too much background sounds from my end. And what are you known for, Andy? It's a good question. What am I known for? You tell me. I spoke at the in-person RailsConf and I run Brighton Ruby in the UK, which is happening in 15 days. Hooray. And would... also, yeah, you're going you're gonna to wave the wise guide at me. Yeah. So I, oh, it's two people with it. That's amazing. So for the COVID interrupted Brighton Ruby in 2020, we got physical copies of wise poignant guide printed and attendees to that got copies of that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I did that too. It's one of my favorite possessions. Next up is Brian Mariani from the Ruby on Rails podcast. Hi, I'm Brian Mariani, founder of Mirror Placement, very specialized niche recruiting service that connects Ruby developers with Ruby employers. Been doing it for 16 years and also a co-host on the Ruby podcast. And the big thing for us has always been to provide a lot of value and really limit the noise when it comes to engineers looking for jobs and employers looking to hire those engineers. Awesome. Where are you calling in from, Brian? From Boston, Massachusetts. Do y'all like how I'm saying calling in like we're actually physically on the phone calling in because I like to think that we are. <laughs> Next up is Drew Bragg from Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. Hi, everyone. I'm Drew. Like Brittany said, I'm the host of Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. I'm calling in from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So the literal opposite side of the state from Brittany. Super excited to be here. Excellent. And next up is Jason Charns from Remote Ruby. Hello, my name is Andrew Mason. I am from Phoenix, Arizona, and I am known for being friends with Jason Charns. Okay. <laughs> we have an imposter amongst our myths. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Andrew is my co-host. He's not here today. Neither is Chris, but I'm in Memphis and 
I would say remote Ruby is probably the thing you might know me from. Oh yeah, for sure. That's the other podcast talking about Rails and Laravel, right? This, this is the official Laravel podcast of the Rails community. I love this. Last but not least is Gemma Isra from the Ruby on Rails podcast. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. Calling in from New York, New York. I think something I, I hopefully am known for is I'm one of the co-organizers of WNB.RB, which is a women non-binary Ruby community. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad that you all are here today. So I'll be acting as moderator. What I plan on doing is going through some opening questions with each of our panelists. And then we are also lucky in the fact that we have guests who are going to be supplying questions that we're going to do about halfway through the episode. But first, I am going to start with Aaron. So Aaron, it's been several weeks since you've started a tuple. I know you're doing some really exciting things there. And I would love to hear just how it's going so far and maybe explain what tuple is to the listeners who don't know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I just recently started at tuple. It's been, I don't know, maybe a month or two now. And Tuple is pair programming software. So it's screen sharing software, but it's really, really focused on the developer use case. So it's really high resolution so that you can actually see text on your pair's computer when you're trying to pair program versus just pixelated text. The latency is really low so that when you're typing on your pair's computer, it actually feels like you're typing and not like you were typing eight seconds ago. So that's our pitch. And... It's been working really well. I think developers really from the outside before I joined, I could tell it was a well-loved company. And now being inside and seeing like all the feedback come in, developers really like tools that are focused specifically on developers. And I find that to be, as a developer, a lot of fun. And so I actually joined as a marketing engineer. So I am by trade a software developer by schooling. I'm actually an accountant, but by trade, I'm a software developer. And I joined Tuple as a marketing engineer. And so my job has been more like, as a developer, I kind of know what developers like. And so my job is to do things that developers would find interesting and bring attention to Tuple. And so our big thing so far has been, we're working on a couple of different experiments we borrowed a whole bunch of money from Stripe through Stripe's capital loan program. And we're going to spend all the money on marketing and see if we can make more money than we spend, which I guess is kind of how marketing is supposed to work. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm not traditionally a marketer. And so I'm kind of figuring it all out as I go. And the team is amazing and Ben, the CEO, is super supportive. And so it's basically just been a whole experiment so far. I love the way that your job is getting very, very slowly cooler over the years. It's like accountant, software developer, marketing developer. So yeah, exactly. What, ne- yeah. what exciting job next, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you this, never back to accounting. That much I know for sure. <laughs> next question is aimed at Andy. So why does it matter to you that we had a successful in-person Rails comp and we're doing this from the at-home version? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So basically, I don't really like online conferences. Sorry, everyone. For me, as someone who runs an in-person conference and ran a virtual thing when COVID hit, I just really miss the people. Like it's all about the simple primate Andy wants to see other friendly primates who do similar stuff to him, who understand what he does for a living because my spouse doesn't. So it's just really nice to be amongst like your people 
also it gives me a chance to travel and eat in new cities. So that's always good. Yeah, but it's always about the people for me. So as a follow-up question, do you think conference participation is going to keep people in this community? Uh, I don't know. It helps me. It helps land me in a community. It helps like reconfigure the way that I think every year or so. Like I like to go there and be challenged or to meet people who I've only seen online and kind of go, oh, they kind of think like that or that person writes funnier than they are or that person is funnier in person than they are when they write it down or like whatever that is, right? It's kind of making my flat screen three-dimensional in my head. So I don't know if that keeps people in the community, but it does for me. I love that. Now, Gemma, as a virtual community organizer, do you have any advice then on how attendees of a virtual conference like this one could get the most out of it? So I think what's really interesting about this breakdown is it's not only virtual, it's also about a month after the in-person version. So I think speaking as a as a speaker at conferences, sometimes when you're speaking at a conference, you sometimes are like really distracted by that talk. And when people come up to engage with you, maybe after the talk or before the talk, your mind is kind of focused on the talk. But right now we have this experience where everyone who talked at the conference has done it a month ago and is not distracted by that right now. So I think it presents a real opportunity to engage with speakers. I don't know if they're all on this platform, but on Twitter, you can definitely find many speakers or maybe on Hopin itself, but actually like have longer form conversations with them about what they're working on and what interested you from their talk. I love the fact that I'm speaking on the second day and I'm not stressed about it. That's the worst thing. If you end up speaking on day three, that sucks. So yeah, not speaking on day three. Well, no, speaking on day two, but like, I've already done it. It's amazing. So Jason, I know for a fact that you spoke on day three. How was that? I got to enjoy about an hour of the conference. So it was cool. The first time I spoke at RailsConf was in 2017. And it was the very like last slot. So that was stressful. But at that RailsConf, Aaron Patterson was the last keynote. So I knew some people would at least stay for the whole conference. And that made it a little better. But no, it was good. It is tough going the last day. Just, I don't know. I get a little less nervous every time I speak. But I still, the day before, get a rush of nerves. If you've been considering trying Honey Badger, now is the time. They have two really cool new features I just learned about. They now have status pages and can monitor your SSL certs. Whether US East 1 is down or you forgot to add a configuration file, everyone has an outage from time to time. When your next outage occurs, transparency is critical. The difference between a minor annoyance that people soon forget and a fiasco that creates sustained resentment is in how you communicate. They just shipped an update that can help communicate outages to your customers public status pages with custom domains and branding. Many certificate authorities, such as Let's Encrypt, will automatically renew your SSL certificates for you. But if you manage your own certificates, you have to remember to renew them yourself. If you forget, your customers won't be able to access your website and Honey Badger will sound the alarm. Honey Badger Uptime Monitoring can now warn you before your SSL certificates expire so that you remember to update them before your customers are affected. Check out honeybadger.io to learn more. Well, I give a lot of credit to the people who go to the conferences who are looking for jobs because I think there's so much opportunity there to network and to go to the job fairs and whatnot. Now, Brian, you are a resident job expert. So I wanted to ask you this question in front of everybody, but what is the difference between a career and a job? And can you actually build a career around working in Ruby on Rails? I think the difference is that a job often feels like work something that you might have to do. You'll get paid for it. 
It may not be your favorite thing, but it's a job. A career is a craft that you dedicate your life to. And when you find it, you know it. And that's what I love to see every day. And I I feel so fortunate because I have a front row seat to watching people really leave their jobs behind and embark on a new career. And that could come in a variety of different ways. You can get someone who's been, who knows, you know, a lifelong Java developer, let's say, who says, I heard about Ruby and I used it once in a side project and I would love a chance to just ditch Java and move to Ruby full-time. Like I would be much happier doing that. And they go for it and they do it and I can help them with that, which I love. It's like super fulfilling on my end. And then a lot of the code schools and boot camps and whatnot have completely changed the game, just allowed people who were in a completely different career to shift gears, sometimes drastically so, and get into software development. And whether or not you could build a career on Ruby, well, for the past 16 years, I certainly have alongside all the engineers out there. But I mean, you can really build a career on any language or platform, of course. And I think more than anything, if you're a software engineer, you're building a career around solving problems. And if you're passionate around solving problems, you can do it a lot of different ways. You can do it with data. You can do it collaborating with different folks, but you can absolutely do it through code. And again, for the past 17 years, if you chose to do it in Ruby, you've been meaningfully employed. And we really don't see any of that demand relenting. I might sound like a broken record, but I continue to be as busy as I ever have. And last month, we actually set a record in my 16 years of running Mirror for having the most clients, which speaks to the most demand we've ever seen, specifically in the Ruby community. And we've heard about some layoffs and whatnot, but not a ton. But for whatever reason, I'm having as many company phone calls with folks who are looking to hire as I ever have. So hopefully that trend continues. That's awesome. So Brian and I have talked about this before. Most of the roles, I think you would agree with this, Brian, probably at least 90% are Ruby on Rails. And so I want to jump over to Jason because I know Jason is actually pretty passionate about Hanami. Hanami is here and it's been progressing. And Jason, what's it going to take for Hanami to make it? And what does even making it mean? I know that I specifically mentioned this topic. I have a lot of thoughts on this recently. So there's a blog post by Jared White about like, what would it take for Rhoda to win? And then that led to a tweet from... Peter from ROMRB or DryRB, also Hanami, asking like, okay, well, what does it take for like Hanami to win? And I want to frame it as win here, not necessarily meaning like unseating rails, right? Just making it as a viable option. And a lot of the comments I read on that were about version two has been sitting for a while. I know they're actively working on it, but it's not been necessarily like, hey, grab this and try it out. And so I think that's going to change soon from reading some of Peter's responses. I know Tim Riley is actually taking like six weeks or something just to work on open source. So I think actually more people having the opportunity to use it will actually help progress it. But also, I think that one of the other comments I read, I'm basically just regurgitating Twitter, if you can't tell. But one of the other comments I read was about like it kind of finding a way to position itself in the ecosystem. And I thought that was really interesting. My boss, Jamie, was saying like, yeah, something about if it could make a very clear use case for this is good for like X, Y problem. I think that's going to be really impactful as well. So I'm still really excited for version two. I know it's taken a little while, but the ideas that Hanami has around like the way they architect apps, like it's different from Rails, but I really think it's fascinating for like long-term maintainability. 
I have an interesting take. So I've met Luca, the original Hanami chap, and I've met Tim, I think, as well, like over the years. I think they are really great. And I know for a fact that doing great stuff, like a friend of mine has a whole business built on a Hanami app. But obviously, we know that Stripe is a Ruby shop, but not a Rails shop. So like, there are successes out there that I personally know of. I think where Hanami and Rhoda, to a lesser extent, struggle, I think, is that the, sort of the, the origin of them feels like you like Rails, but it's not quite to your taste. One of the whole things about Rails is it's all the batteries are sort of included, apart from a user model, right, Aaron? That's kind of Rails' thing. In that way, it's beginner-friendly. So like, part of the thing is like, there's a sense with the Hanami folks where you're graduating onto a, this is a more opinionated, slightly more rigid way of doing a Ruby framework. And I think it doesn't quite have that entry point yet, which I think is Rails' is a great thing. It's like the 15-minute blog post. Yes. One thing that actually, before I even got really into Hanami, both Tim and Peter have wonderful conference talks you can find online about blending object-oriented programming and functional, like blending those concepts together. And yeah, that's terrific. actually what kind of turned me on to Hanami. It's like they started working on Hanami for version two and bringing some of those concepts. And I think, mm. I think they are fascinating. And like, to your point at that time, I kind of felt when I was reading about it, I was bumping up against the rails way. And like, that kind of felt like an alternative. I think there's definitely things they can learn. Both frameworks can learn from each other. And I think the wider the tent, the better. Brian, have you ever gotten requests for Hanami? Not yet. Yeah, we keep our ears to the ground on this sort of thing. I wouldn't be surprised. Things can change quickly. I know this happened with Elixir a while back. Just a lot of Ruby developers very interested in Elixir. And it sort of came and surged quite a bit and then tailed off. But I'm going to be keeping my eyes and ears peeled now. Yeah, I'm going to use that as a measurement of whether or not Brian's getting requests for it or if Andrew and Aaron add a third co-host onto Framework Friends just for Hanami. That's going to be my line. So Drew, I wanted to ask you, so you are our newest addition to the Ruby podcast community, and I want to know how it's been going so far. And do you have any lessons to share to listeners? We know there are listeners out there who are thinking about starting podcasts. Yeah, it's been going really well so far. I've been getting a lot of good feedback. Listenership is growing, so I must be doing something right. I think the thing I'm doing right is shutting up and letting the guests talk. So I think that's the key is talk less, let them talk more. I think as far as like recommendations or things I've learned is... Um, pretty much just going to regurgitate everything that Jason, Chris, and Andrew said in their talk for RailsConf is like, keep it simple, try and get consistent with it. I foolishly started it without a co-host and I'm regretting that decision. Soloing it is hard, but yeah, if you are thinking about starting one, go for it. There's so many different ways to get your foot in the door. Buzzsprout is my podcast host of choice because it uses Rails. And there's still a ton of space. I run out of podcasts to listen to every week, listening to them. And there's so many awesome guests out there just waiting for an opportunity to talk. So if you're thinking about starting one, go for it. Any more advice to share, Gemma? Yeah, I'm not sure this is necessarily advice, but I, I think the two conversations we're having are actually really similar. The one about frameworks and this one about podcasts, right? I think an argument for more frameworks and diversity in frameworks is that they can then learn from each other. And even if Rails is still the dominant one and there's a strong case to be made for that to happen or not, there are also strong cases. Frameworks still grow by diversity and existence of other frameworks. 
And I think similarly, all of us can say more podcasts entering this space is better for each of our individual podcasts too, right? It allows us more of an opportunity to learn from each other and to figure out if we want our own niches or where what we're doing makes sense. And so really appreciate more podcasts coming in too. What do you think, Andy? First of all, have you ever got to the bottom of your podcast queue? That seems amazing to me. Well done. For me, I think the thing that I did most is just like get an editor. Either get an editor or don't care. Those are the two options. Don't do it yourself. So if I do he and I, we don't want to commit to doing it all the time. So we do like seasons of four. So like we'll meet up every week for four weeks and then we'll get them all and we'll, we'll drop them all at once, which is on a different style to most folks. But it means that we can sort of squeeze it into our lives. But yeah, getting an editor, the first four episodes were done by me. And apparently they were all right. But like, I did not enjoy that. I listened to my own voice. I mean, as much as I like listening to my own voices, I'm talking, which I do. I didn't like listening to my own voice played back. But yeah, that's the second season. I just got a recommendation from Jason for the editor who does all of this and who will be editing this. So, um, hi, Paul. Thanks. Who likes listening to their own voice? You are a different person, Andy. I appreciate you so much for that. And now I want to hear what Aaron thinks here. If I had a voice like Andy's, I would like listening to it. I know that much for sure. Yeah, I think Gemma was talking about how frameworks and podcasts are kind of similar in one regard. And I think... That's a lot of what Andrew and I talk about on Framework Friends is how we can all learn. Specifically in our context, we talk about how each framework ecosystem, whether that's Laravel or Rails or Elixir or whatever, each ecosystem has relative strengths and can learn from the other ecosystems, even outside of the technical things. I think we can learn a lot of from Laravel on the marketing the Laravel marketing and branding and cohesiveness is really, really good. And I think we can learn a lot from that in other ecosystems. And you look at Elixir and they just have some of like the most technically interesting things that they're doing. And it's three or four levels above my head, but we can still learn from these other ecosystems. And that doesn't mean I'm going to go be an Elixir developer, but that does mean I can look at what they're doing and say like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I wonder if I could port that over to my language. And I think the same goes for podcasts. Everyone has a unique point of view. And the more people that we have out there talking about it, I think the broader and more diverse points of view we're exposed to, I think the better off we're all going to be. So if you want to start a podcast, go do it. Love that. And the reason that I like Framework Friends so much is I do get to hear concepts about Laravel, though I'm curious if you have any recommendations for even just breaking out of the Ruby community and listening to other ideas and other communities. I like the change log a lot. They tend to have a lot of great content. But do you have any other recommendations, Aaron? A lot of my other recommendations are going to be Laravel specific. And so if you're interested in that, there's Laravel News, which keeps everybody up to date on the latest changes in the framework and the ecosystem and that kind of thing. There's another one that Taylor, the creator, has done one for a while called the Laravel Snippet. He doesn't do it quite as much anymore, but there is also a Laravel podcast and they do theirs in seasons. And right now they're going through notable packages in the ecosystem. And so each different episode, they're bringing on a new package author and diving deep into like, what does this package do? Who would use it? Why would you use it? That sort of thing. So those are some of the ones, the Laravel specific ones that I enjoy. Okay, awesome. Well, Drew, I have two questions for you. I hope you're ready. One's from me and then one is from a listener. So the first one for me is, does that mean you're going to be on the dating market at some point for a co-host? And what are you looking for? I have been thinking about it. 
I don't know what I'm looking for, which is why I haven't gone out and done it. Ideally, I would just steal Andrew Mason and I'd be done with it because he's the whole reason why the podcast exists anyway. But yeah, I don't know. It would definitely be nice to have someone even just as a regular guest almost, just so that when I don't have time to like bring in a new guest and like set that all up, just someone to chat with or someone to even do some of the guest interviews when I get slammed at work would be awesome. But I have to figure out exactly what I'm looking for in that front before I actually start going down and finding someone. Okay. So listeners should keep an eye on Twitter. And if you have any recommendations, I mean, my recommendation for you is to know what you do well and find the person who's going to be the opposite of that. So I think that's great. This episode is also brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. So the listener question is from Tim Carey. He wants to know, Drew, what's up with view components? They're awesome. You should use them if you're struggling with components, partials, and organizing views in your Rails app. I think Joel has done a great job developing that system. We are actively implementing it at work. It's one of the projects I'm kind of in charge of and it's going really well. So I can't say enough nice things about it. And yeah, you should definitely check it out if you have not already. So Brian, I think we talked about how there is still so much demand for Ruby and Rails developers right now and really for developers in general. Do you have any tips for employers who are looking to hire right now? Yeah, a couple tips, just a couple like unique things that I saw work well recently. One, which I may have brought up once on the Ruby podcast, but maybe not, is the idea of using a reverse reference. That really worked well. And I've been advising like almost every client now, especially when you get to the end of the stage and they have a developer they really would like to hire. It is very helpful to actually send references to the candidate. And there could be all kinds of reasons in this one particular case. The CTO was just a great mentor and he had been a great mentor to a lot of people. And it was kind of like the right timing to sort of send the candidate some references to, because his big thing in that situation was that he thought he could be very good career-wise for that engineer. And she took him up on that. And for the engineer, she was sold on that. Like she really talked to some of the people that were mentored by the CTO and saw their career trajectory and growth and what they had to say. She talked to them. And it really made a big difference. So that's kind of a cool thing, right? Everyone always asks the candidate for references, but the candidate never really asks the employer for references. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing I would say for both companies hiring and for the developers, get a Calendly account. <laughs> that is like the number one thing because it is so hard to book interviews. And a lot of times I get stuck in the middle and I have no problem doing it, but it's so tough. People's schedules change so fast and time is of the essence when you're hiring. So the sooner you can just give 
all the autonomy to the developer and say, book whatever works for you. It's such a simple thing. More employers are doing it now, but not as many as I would love, at least of my clients. So I always advocate for that as well. Calendly is big. I agree. I think it's a courtesy. And this podcast is not sponsored by them, but I am a huge fan of the Art of Product podcast. And so I'm a very loyal Savvy Cow user and Tuple user. So (laughs) I just really bought in there because if you listen to an episodic podcast like that, you really just start to cheer them on. And so then you kind of want to use the product. So it's very clever what they've done and they're incredibly committed to what they do. Now, Jason, I want to ask you, how can podcasts stay connected with their listeners nowadays? Just because we have more than 60 people watching this and this will be far wider once we publish this out there. So how can we stay connected to our listeners? There's so much of the Ruby community that's on Twitter that that's like always my go-to. I left Twitter and then realized I didn't talk to anyone in Ruby anymore and came back. It was like total mistake. So that's actually the thing we do the most. I recently started just like tweeting from the remote Ruby account, asking people what they want to talk about. And once you filter out most of the people who are just trolling us, we've taken those and made whole episodes out of it. And that's been a really good way to feel connected is because sometimes like after we record it, we can just like tweet that episode back to someone. And it's, I don't know, it just feels like real interaction. Outside of that, really, it's just the conference thing too, like going to conferences and actually like meeting people who listen. Because I often say a lot of times it feels like we're just recording into the void. So when people come and talk to you and be like, oh, like this episode or like this life event or somebody like I was getting on the elevator at RailsConf and they were like, bet. And that was the thing we told people to tell us (laughs) at RailsConf. And I was like, holy crap. There's a lot of just little interpersonal ways. So I have an upcoming episode where I have Nick Schroeder, one of the co-hosts of the Ruby on Rails podcast, attempt to explain Twitter spaces to me because I'm a grandma. But I will also admit, too, that I'm not good at discourse either. So if there are discourses that I should be in, like, does anybody on this panel know, like, are there other places to be other than Twitter? Because to me, Reddit only gets exciting in r slash rails when someone randomly comes by with a train gif and they think that's what that's for. (laughs) Those are the best posts. But otherwise, I don't get a ton of value out of Reddit on that front. What do you think, Drew? The Go Rails Discord is a really good one. I think you might have to be a subscriber, which you should be anyway. But yeah, that's a pretty active one. I do way more lurking than posting in there, but it's a very active group. Do you have any advice, Andy? I'm just thinking Ruby Talk. It's got to be a thing, right? I hear TikTok is big with the kids. I'm a 42-year-old bald man. What the hell do I know? (laughs) Does anyone else have any other suggestions for connecting with your listeners? I think open source is another way to do it. The open source community is pretty active and vibrant and there are ways you can pair with people or just contribute in open source communities and meet more folks doing Ruby. I think that's a great segue into asking you, Gemma, how have you been enjoying working on Ruby itself? I love it. I feel very fortunate to be able to work on the internals there. I feel really lucky and it's been so interesting and I think I've been trying as I go along to also make it easier and more straightforward for others to contribute because I think... Ruby itself, it's not the most straightforward how to even install it or get it running locally or things like that. And so hopefully, yeah, more folks will be interested in doing that if it's made a little more approachable. I've asked you this on a podcast before, but I love the tips. It's actually the reason I reached out to Gemma to even have her on the show was the tips that she posts in Ruby Weekly. Ruby Weekly is always just like such a highlight for me. 
And I'm curious, like, where do you get these ideas from? <laughs> I'm always looking for new ideas. So if anyone has, please shoot them my way. At first, it was just reading docs and being like, oh, I hadn't heard of this or this method wasn't something I knew about. Also, a lot of it comes from pairing, which now that I'm working on Ruby, I'm writing more C than Ruby. I'm getting less of it from pairing, but just pairing with people, I think is such a good way to learn not only about Ruby, but just their workflows and things like that. And you'll pick up little commands people will write or little things they'll do or, or things you thought were well known that they didn't know or vice versa. And that's a really good source of tips. So I, this is the entire reason I write my blog. I have a newsletter that was fortnightly and then it's currently on hiatus whilst I was doing a Ruby talk. But yeah, a similar sort of thing. Like it was things that I was realizing I was writing these quite, I'm not going to use the word eloquent, but eloquent PR reviews of like, don't do it like this. Had you thought about doing like this? What about using this technique? Actually, the Ruby idiom is more like this. And I was like, I'm wasting these in my private PRs. I should be putting these out into the world. And so that's the entire reason that I have a newsletter thing, my blog. So yeah, that's that similar sort of thing. It's just like, oh, you, did you not know that? Or I can't believe I've been programming in Ruby for 12 years and I've just come across this method that does a thing that I've been writing some Byzantine page full of code to do. So yeah, always learning. That's good, right? So on the topic of communication, I'm glad that we're recording this because I've always wanted to ask Aaron this. Aaron, how are you so good at Twitter? Oh, I spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, that's funny because as Andy, as you were talking about doing this and then using it as a newsletter, I was thinking, I bet everyone here does stuff all day long at work that would just make incredible content on Twitter. And so I think that's part of what I do is I've trained my brain to kind of have like content brain where I can look at something that I'm doing and be able to pull that out and turn it into like a little snippet to share. One of the things I learned maybe a year or two ago was you never know what other people are going to find interesting. And I was doing a lot of self-limiting. I was being the blocker on what I was sharing with people. And once I removed that, it was like, I actually have no idea what people will find interesting. I'm just going to share more stuff. That's when it really started to hit for me because I would share something that I thought was just totally obvious and a throwaway and it would go crazy. And I would share something that I thought was really smart and really clever. And people were like, yeah, I don't get it. That's stupid. And so I just kind of decided okay, my job here is not to decide what other people will determine as like too easy or whatever. My job is to find interesting things that I'm doing, package it up in an accessible way for Twitter, which is kind of like a art in itself, and then just share it. And if it goes nowhere, that's fine because I'm going to share something else, you know, later today or tomorrow or whenever. So Brian, how much does it matter about actual community content that someone's putting out in terms of finding a job? Because I had a friend the other day that was prompted for their link to their Facebook page. And it's just like, no, I would not provide that. So I'm curious what your take is there. Gosh, the more, the better. It's usually a matter of time. People can dedicate the time to do it. But yeah, for engineers, I always tell them anything you can share, whether it's your code or whether it is a blog or whatever it might be. It's just going to go so far for you. And with the code, it's tough because sometimes people can work for years on stuff that's proprietary and they're not able to share it. But more and more people are like going out of the way, especially young developers or people early in their career. That's like the number one piece of advice I have is 
show off your skills however you can, like just get something out there publicly. And that has made a big difference because otherwise, especially if you don't have a ton of experience just coming out of a boot camp or just out of college, wherever it might be, it could be a little bit of a struggle. But when you can show something, some involvement, some engagement, that it does, it goes a long way. It's just a matter of depending on the seniority level, how much time folks have to do it. What do you think, Andy? Also take dates off blog posts. This is my number one rule for life is take dates off blog posts because nobody needs to know that those five posts that you wrote in a month when you first set your blog up were the only posts you wrote. So maybe put the date on it, but it's small at the bottom. Probably the advice you're giving is still relevant. So take your dates off blog posts. And the other thing I was to say, this is literally the reason I ended up running conferences. So I lived in Singapore for six years. I did Ruby and Rails over there and I came back to the UK and I knew nobody. So I just thought, what's the easiest way to get to know people? I was wrong. It was really, really hard work, but that's similar sort of instinct, right? Like putting yourself out there. That's the only thing you can do, right? Brian was talking about people working on internal apps and not being able to share. I think that's very true for a lot of people, but I think if you take, maybe it's just like a half step further, you'll find that you're solving pretty normal problems. Even if you can't open source the code or whatever, you solved a problem that a bunch of other people are having. You can take the code and generalize it into like a learning or a takeaway or some sort of abstraction, put it into one of those online code formatters, make a pretty screenshot, whatever, and say like, hey, here's what I learned. This is the pattern that I used. And so even if you're in a spot where you're like, I don't know, what's the worst, like working inside of a bank, you'll never be able to share like open source any of the code you wrote. I bet every single day you learned something or did something in a clever way or came across something that you thought was interesting that you could go write from scratch in one of those little screenshot editors and then just share just like the general takeaway. For the record, Aaron, Brian brought me a developer who was working inside of banks. <laughs> I, know, I, didn't, I didn't know who I was going to offend by saying, what's the worst probably working in a bank? <laughs> what do you think, Gemma? Yeah, I think there's also a way to share content that's not specifically code. Sharing your workflows or your processes or things like that that won't be proprietary. Also, just that talks are a great avenue to do this, whether it is code you want to share or processes or how you manage or how you thought about architecting a bigger project or anything like that. Always apply to talk at conferences, too, because I think that also gets you to what Brian was saying. It gets you like a wider surface area or a bigger net that companies can notice you from? Yeah, actually, I've been pairing a fair amount with Andrew Mason from time to time. And he recently, I forget what was going on, but he got real mad about something I had set up in my editor. Uh, he was mad and I, I said that I don't really know how to set up this editor. I kind of just install an extension I need and then it just sits there. And he started tweaking things and he made it so much better. And I was like, wow, that's not even code related. But now my entire job has gotten much easier by implementing something that he was like, this is annoying, change it. And I was like, actually, this is amazing. Any thoughts there, Jason? I just want to say that if you're looking to create more presence for yourself, don't start a conference to do that. I know Andy mentioned conference and I was thinking about Southeast Ruby and yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Friends don't let friends know conferences. Well, still start a conference, but don't do it for like money or notoriety or any of that stuff. Just do it because you like want to hang out with folks. That's a good reason. Like Andy was saying, like he just didn't know many Ruby devs. Also, like if you do want to start a conference, 
drop me an email. I will help you. I have a lot of experience in this. If you're thinking about doing it, do it. It is fun. You just need to put guardrails on yourself. Mm. It can be a little financially scary, but I think more regional conferences is better than a couple of massive events. Be nice to have more regional conferences back. Shout out to Andy who still puts on Bright and Ruby. It is no small feat to put on a conference, but to keep doing it, give that man an award. You've got to be a massive egomaniac. That's the trick. All right. Can't compete with that. Kind of go. <laughs> Andy, how do you do it? Are you organizing it yourself? Do you have people you can rely on? Do you have sponsors? Just any sort of tips there. I'm so curious, like how you pull it off. So I deliberately limit myself to what I offer. I do one day. I do one track. I keep it relatively small. So there was a good chance that I was not going to get back on the horse after the COVID break. It's easier to keep it going if you are focused. I'm very focused on breaking even. So like I do my maths up front, get a little spreadsheet out and I work out how much ticket prices got to be, how much I think I can get for sponsorships. I've been fortunate. There's a few good Ruby shops in the UK, people like Free Agent and Cookpad who have sponsored me for years. And so generally I can sort of ping the VP engineering or the CTO or their marketing person and go, so thinking of doing it again, would you in principle be interested in throwing me some money to make it happen? And that really helps. You need sponsorship. Don't do food. Food's really expensive. Do it somewhere where people can go and get their own food, like the city that I live in. And yeah, just constrain yourself. I mean, I actually don't have much help. I do everything myself, like egomaniac. I get help on the day. So my friend Nadia comes down, she does a registration and I lean on venues that do a lot for me as well. So yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I do to make it easier so I'm not doing lots of stuff, but also I do things like I hole punch 200 badges, which is what's coming up for me in the next two weeks. They're literally sat down here by the side of my desk. So I design the badge and then I hole punch it and then I put the lanyard on and then everyone wears them and then it's all good. Awesome. Well, Jason, you are going to take us home with a closing thought there. So it's got to be a good one. It's got to be good. I'm going to overpromise and underdeliver. I was just going to say, even listening to Andy right there, I learned so much about what I did wrong for three years with Southeast Ruby. So I think that's all very good advice. That's my deep thought. That's awesome. Well, I have had so much fun having this conversation today. Big thank you to our panelists today, Brian, Gemma, Andy, Drew, Aaron, and Jason. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all the people who are listening live at RailsConf at home. We so appreciate you. Thank you to our listeners. And if you have any follow-up questions for us, you know how to find us. We'll link it up all in the show notes. But thank you so much and have a great conference, everyone. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening. It's just me now. You should go. What are you still doing here? It's over. Bye, people.